everybody and welcome to the second in our series of Urban Transport Next conversations with a live online audience on the topics that will help determine the future of urban transport. So whether you're spending your lunchtime with us listening live or whether you're listening to the podcast later or watching the playback on YouTube, thank you so much for joining us. I'm Jonathan Bray, Director of the Urban Transport Group the organisation that's hosting these events. For those of you who don't know us, we bring together the transport authorities for the largest urban areas, so Transport for London, Transport for Greater Manchester, Transport for West Midlands, and all the other major metro areas, serving 20 million people uh, across the country. And as well as being a body that thinks ahead about what next for urban transport, our members can implement that thinking on the ground and can and do learn collectively from these events. I'm really pleased that so many people have signed up to take part in this event. I think it was over 150 and delighted that we have such a great panel for this conversation. And what is a key issue for the transport sector, which is how does it better reflect the diversity of the places and people it serves? And we have two great speakers for you on this. Stainton Brown who is Director of Diversity, Inclusion and Talent at Transport for London. Stainton has held a number of senior roles in his career, including at the Learning and Skills Council, where he led on social inclusion, equality and project management, as an, an Associate Director at Guy's and St Thomas's NHS Foundation Trust Hospital and Assistant Director in the Lambeth Public Health Team. It's always great to hear from TfL. There's always lots uh, we can all learn, given TfL's, TfL's scale, its creativity and its commitment. Our second speaker is Joanna Ward, an Associate Transport Planner at Structural and Civil Engineering Practice Elliot Wood Partnership. Joanna is an active member of Women in Transport, a board director of the Transport Planning Society, as well as a member of the all-party Parliamentary Cycling and Walking Group. And uh, it's good that we've got someone from Women in Transport in particular, as um, this week at long last, at long last, we had our first uh, chair of the Urban Transport Group elected, who is a woman. That's uh, Laura Schoff, who leads transport for West Midlands. So some progress there. And our host uh, for the conversation is Claire Linton who is our policy and research advisor at the Urban Transport Group, who among many other things, plays a leading role for us on our collective work on people, skills, diversity and organisational development. So you can also be part of this conversation by putting your questions, um, keep them short and sharp, please, uh, in uh, the channel on Zoom. Uh, you can also upvote for your questions that uh, you most want answered. And we'll be picking up on those in the final section of the conversation. Uh, we also have the, the comments channel where you can make more general comments, but that might not necessarily be picked up as the, the questions. And of course, on Twitter, using the hashtag UTG next. So that's hashtag UTG next. So with that, I will hand over to Claire. Thanks very much, Jonathan. Um, I'm really pleased that we've got this hour slot here to discuss diversity in the transport sector. It's a really important subject. It's really close to my heart and um, it's really close to the work that we've been doing at Urban Transport Group over recent years, sort of trying to push push forward with this and support our members in there tackling diversity in the transport sector. Um, so I think to kick us off, it'd be really interesting to hear a little bit from our panellists about their career journeys, about their experience and how they ended up in the transport sector. Um, so I'd invite uh, Stainton to give us a little bit of background about his career and his journey first, and then we'll hear from Joe after that. Thanks, Claire. And it's great, it's great to be here uh, for the next hour or so. I'll do my best to answer uh, the questions that will uh, um, be shared uh, as the session goes on. Um, and uh, a great, great credit need to go to the Urban Transport Group, uh, uh, Claire and uh, and the team in, in getting this set up because it's hugely difficult uh, as we're all contending with at the moment uh, with uh, lockdown three. I saw LD three as a as an acronym uh, was sent to me by a text the other day, and uh, yeah, really got me thinking about the, uh, just yeah, just the kind of the crazy events that we're all having to contend with. Um, so uh, my career, my career journey. I mean, I never intended to get into transport um, when I uh, uh, was growing up in Dudley. I'm from the Midlands originally. Um, I uh, studied economics, uh, and then I um, was really interested in uh, issues of social justice. That's very important to me, um, and so I decided to take a career um, uh, in the probation service. And so when I started off my career, I trained. Uh, as a probation officer, I work with high risk uh, high risk offenders. 
Um, it was the most incredible experience uh, for me. It kind of really showed me the importance of uh, of listening uh, and listening intently and how difficult uh, sometimes it is to really tune your ear in. And if you didn't listen properly, then you probably wouldn't be able to to make a, a proper assessment as whether someone was likely to reoffend or not. Um, but it also showed me the uh, the issues with regard to biases as well, uh, very unconscious and cognitive biases uh, too, which kind of bearing on uh, on your ability to do your job, which is to keep the public safe. Um, but when I left the probation service, I, I realised I wanted to get into more of a, um, a policy formulation strategy tackle because it was clear to me um, that to, to lead good, healthy lives, um, there are lots of indeterminate, there are lots of uh, um, things that are interconnected. So you need green spaces, um, you need good well-being and good health, access to education, um, uh, employment uh, as well. All of these things are really important to. Uh, to think about very carefully uh, to, uh, for me to try to make some sort of impact in creating uh, fairer uh, and uh, more equal uh, communities and people live the best lives that they can. So uh, I work for the Skills Council uh, nationally, um, uh, uh, working um, looking at social, uh, social impact and policy and so forth. Um, and then I uh, got a fantastic job in public health um, in Lambeth. And that was absolutely fantastic because you got to understand the wide determinants of, uh, of poor health and uh, you know that's access to green spaces I've touched on already access to transport um, you know clean air um, you know isolation social isolation so public health was an incredible grounding or so it was, it was brilliant for me just to, to think beyond um, the falls of an academic discipline and then I worked in the NHS um, and as a director role uh, there I've covered a number of different uh, areas and worked across three hospitals and and also university uh, on social impact and social mobility programs. Um, and then I got a job, uh, luckily, in Transport for London, where a lot of the learning I've had in my career um, was really brought to the fore, um, particularly now we see with the decarbonisation agenda, active travel. Um, so uh, that's a bit of a potted history. I could go on for this all day, but uh, I'll hand back to you, Claire. No, that's great. Thanks very much, Dainton. And I think it's probably a theme that will come up um, later when we think about sort of career paths into the transport sector. But I think a lot of people sort of fall into the transport sector and kind of don't. It's not something people always think about going for as a career path, but kind of come from other from other sectors or from different kind of disciplines. So, um, and Joe, would you like to tell us a little bit about um, your career path and experience in the transport sector? Thank you. Um, it's really lovely to be here today and really nice to chat with both of you. Um, I'm another person who didn't set out to become a transport planner. <laughs> I um, moved about quite a lot when I was growing up. So just through my my, my parents' work, I um, lived in the countryside till I was 10 and I moved to Lambeth when I was 10. So I've lived in, in, in the Lambeth Walk. So I <laughs> know Lambeth really well. Um, and I just became really, I was really curious about how people get about. I'm quite nosy. I want to know why people get to go, need to go where they need to go and how do they get there. Um, I also became determined that you didn't have to have a car to be able to do that. So why should you have to? Why should that be the default setting that we assume everybody's got a car and that, and that becomes the kind of thing? So I uh, went to Derby University and studied geography um, and then I didn't know what I wanted to do. And I got a job at West Sussex County Council working in traffic calming when that was the done thing. And, um, and I've kind of worked my way through transport ever since. I've worked for a number of different um consultancies, local authorities, and I worked for the charity sector for a long time with Sustrans. And I'm just really um, interested in how people get to places, why they can't get to places, why those barriers are in place, why, can't, why do they have to be? And I kind of, sort of by accident, came kind of got interest, got involved with the Transport Planning Society and Women in Transport and became an advocate for, for asking difficult questions as to why we don't have a more diverse transport sector. So why is it that I find myself in a conference where I'm the youngest person there and the only woman? What, what, why is that? Why has that ever happened? And, and what are we going to do to, to overturn that? And um, I've written quite a lot about why I think we need um more people involved in the discussions we have around transport and I'm sure that'll come up in the conversation but it's my belief that if we don't all get involved and that doesn't just mean transport professionals that just means everybody as part of the community how can we ever intend to plan something for everybody because we just can't know what everybody's thinking um, so I find myself at Elliot Wood as the head of the transport team um, and, and just uh, yeah working in transport to try and make those kind of pathways a bit more um, available to people. Great. Thanks very much, Jay. 
Um, so I think sort of to kick off the conversation around diversity in the transport sector, I think it'd be really useful to have a bit of a reflection on where we are now and kind of, you know, what's what have we already achieved in terms of improving diversity in the transport sector, but also a bit of a stock take to think about what, what does the transport sector look like? Um, so we kind of know where we're going. And when we start to think about what we can do about it, um, we kind of know, know where we're starting from. Um, so I'll stay with Joe if that's okay. And I know you've written quite extensively about sort of women in, in transport planning. Um, but yeah, if you could just give us a few reflections on, on where we are in terms of diversity in the transport sector. Well, I think, we, I think we, we're probably doing better than we were, but I certainly don't think it's good enough. I think we can do a lot better, which is, is not kind of a kind of, um, uh, I'm not trying to just give a kind of easy answer. I think there needs to be some more research into this. I don't think there is enough research and there isn't enough evidence of, of who's working so we know where we need to get to. Um, and women transport are doing some research at the moment um, and uh, about the gender split in terms of people working in transport. And we need some more men to answer because we're women in transport, but we're all about more diversity in transport. So I think if you look on our social media channels, you can find that survey at the moment. We've got some good responses, but we need some more men to take part so we get some kind of good body of evidence. But in kind of the different um, areas of, of diversity that, that we think about in terms of gender and race and um, sex and disability and, and economic background, I'm not sure we know enough about that. And I think there is probably some issues that we need to unpick in terms of um, uh, it being open to a certain sector of society and therefore people making appointments of people that look like them. And, it, and that's just not good enough. It's, 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 it's just not acceptable in the world that we're in at the moment. And if we want to, and I do believe transport is firmly part of the recovery from the um, pandemic, and also in order to deal with the other crisis that we've got going on that hasn't gone away, the climate crisis, we've got to think about how we make things accessible to everybody. So from building new houses to being in meetings, we've got to call out and say, now, is this really doing what it's supposed to do? Is Who are the people not in the room and who's not getting their say? And we've got to be disruptive and turn things on their head and uh, listen to the voices that we're not hearing. Great, thanks very much, Jay. And Stainton, um, your reflections on sort of where we are now in terms of diversity, and um, it'd be interesting to hear a bit about um, sort of TfL and um, sort of how TfL are doing on, on diversity at the moment as well. Yeah, I think, you know, I agree with everything that uh, Joe's already, uh, Joe already said. I mean, just specifically with regard to, to kind of TfL, one of them, one of the incredible things about my uh, job and one of the reasons I, I absolutely love it is because, you know, it's both customer-facing, uh, accessibility and how we create an inclusive designed uh, transport network uh, as also the diversity, inclusion and talent piece uh, on the people uh, side. Because, you know, we genuinely see, and there are lots of examples where uh, if we do have uh, a much greater representation of people um, in senior leadership positions and in our own organisation, we're much better able um, to innovate on behalf of uh, all people who come into the capital. Because everybody, um, uh, there will be different types of needs, uh, different requirements that people uh, will sometimes take. And one of the things that I've always uh, said to, to people uh, in my time at TfL is being, you know, if let's say London was wholly designed by people um, with any mobility impairments, um, or mobility requirements or older people, the place and space would feel incredibly different um, and probably would be more accessible for everybody. So um, so I think that that interconnectedness is, for me, that's the business case for this. I know the business case we've spoken about for many, 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 many years. Um, but I think at TfL, we really have been able to, to demonstrate and show, OK, if we have people who are neurodiverse um, uh, on one of our um, uh, development and training programmes, uh, employability programs or we've recruited uh, as we have done over a number of years people into customer service assistant uh, uh, roles we've been much better able to think about signage wayfinding and just make our whole transport network much more accessible and inclusive in terms of kind of where we are i think you know we we are doing okay um and i think there's a huge amount of work led by transport operators across the country uh, universities to try and make uh, transport careers are uh, more attractive um, uh, to, to different groups of people rather than the um, uh, uh, the typical, you know, uh, characterization of if it's a young male, uh, typically a young white male who uh, wants to, to be involved in, in kind of working on trains. And so I think there's a huge amount that's been done nationally to, to 
to make the transport industry much more attractive and it has to start really early. So we've worked uh, for years with the London Transport Museum uh, and engaging with people of school age, uh, people who are uh, about to choose their A-levels, people about to go to university. So so I think that's incredibly important that we're seeing uh, different groups of people wanting to come into transport. I think the main kind of challenge, uh, I think, uh, for us is uh, there's one thing attracting people in and now it's really important that people are able to develop in their careers um, and what we wanted to see with the transport you typically have relatively long lengths of service we're wanting to see much greater end of ability lateral moves uh, within our own, own organization and people progressing um, uh, as well if they were to so choose uh, into more senior uh, senior roles um, so that's the really big challenge for us but we have targets um, uh, that are in our uh, scorecard that's um, uh, uh, ultimately the accountability for the delivery we have to report to the mayor because uh, he's the chair of our board so um, we've always placed, uh, you know, having a more representative senior management team as well as a wider organisation uh, on our top scorecard. So we've made steady progress uh, there, but I really want to get and see more people progress and develop their careers uh, to hear about. Great. Thanks very much. Um, and one of the other things I was thinking about in terms of um, thinking about where we are on diversity is I think thinking about the different roles within the transport sector. Um, so I was having a look at what stats were out there and I was have luckily DFT's workforce data is available to have a look at and they're sort of showing that they are 59% male and 41% female. So, you know, not quite 50-50, but, you know, getting there. But then if we look at some of the more sort of conventional uh, transport roles, sort of railway engineers, we're only seeing 4.4% women in railway engineering. Um, and then us having a look at train drivers and for train drivers, only 8% of train drivers are from a black, Asian or minority ethnic background. So as a sector as a whole, we might be making some progress, but are there kind of areas that are still very, very sticky that we're still kind of having real trouble with and, and we might be seeing sort of an ageing workforce in those spaces? Um, so, so I don't know if you have any reflections on that sort of from London and your, your uh, perspective across the sector. Yeah, we do. I mean, you know, a way to describe it is, you know, there is still occupational segregation, uh, if you like, uh, within different professional groups uh, within uh, within transport. I mean, um, we have provided, we have really uh, put a huge amount of focus um, in uh, making sure our train manager recruitment campaigns um, are hitting lots of different spaces and places, uh, communities, and have thought very carefully also uh, about the, the stories they relayed in terms of it being a career for anybody. Um, uh, just to buck up against some of the stereotypes and the unconscious biases uh, that we all have uh, about, you know, who we would think would typically be uh, a uh, a train driver. So so I think that, you know, there are still um, uh, a good number of roles in engineering. Uh, one I, you know, worked with the university before I uh, was in this role. Um, and one of the things that was quite clear was that, um, and Joe may have a comment on this too, um, that you know, the, when when men or women or people from different ethnic backgrounds and uh, and so forth uh, are about to choose their sciences, there might have been an early kind of kind of real interest in uh, say engineering, but when they go to choose their sciences and then go and progress through their degrees, um, uh, they decide to go down say the medical route um, uh, rather than uh, taking a fantastic career uh, within within transport. So. So I think there's still a hell of a lot to do uh, in uh, very specific professions. If I look at our organisation, um, you know, over 50% of uh, new uh, external appointees uh, in senior roles have been women, for example. Um, and so we've had been able to make you know, pretty good uh, kind of increased improvements there. Um, but there are some kind of trickier, uh, trickier areas. And uh, we've got to look at how attractive those spaces are uh, and those roles are. We've got to think differently about how we talk about those roles uh, as well. They are, um, I think, hugely attractive if we speak about them in the right way. And then we've got to make sure that when people start in those roles, um, they are genuinely inclusive environments. And I think that's that's a challenge for any uh, profession uh, that has a majority population. There are norms and customs uh, that form over a hell of a long time. So we want to make sure that when people come in, they also want to stay uh, as well. So that's why we focus both on increasing the representation, but also we've got to make sure those cultures and environments are, are genuinely inclusive and those people coming in um, are given as much support uh, as possible because, you know, they will be uh, often groundbreaking. They sometimes will be the only uh, woman or someone from a, a black and Asian minority uh, background um, uh, at a particular depot. That's not so much the case in TFL, actually. 
Um, the Bain representation is, is pretty good on train drivers, but that's what we've got to focus on. It's the representation, but also then really make sure the environment is, is inclusive. Great. Thanks very much, Dainton. And Joe, do you have some reflections on, on this kind of different parts of the transport sector? Yeah, I think I think the transport sector has probably got to, um, got, to, got to stop hiding its light under a bushel and start promoting itself as a really interesting career. I think we've been um, quite shy as transport professionals to say, actually, I quite like this. It's quite a good job. You know, it's interesting. Well, I think it's interesting and different, but you know what I mean? I think we need to promote ourselves a bit more. I mean, goodness knows, um, a key example in Nottingham before Christmas last year or the year before, we had some problems with a bridge in Nottingham and people were suddenly saying, well, why can't I get into Nottingham? Who looks after this? And then and you want to come back with thousands of people working transport every day, which means that in the in the world before COVID, you could get to work on time. And we just we just don't question that enough. It's just because it works and it happens and we don't think who does it until something goes wrong. So I think we need to all be a bit prouder of where we work and, and shout out about that. But I think there's also this kind of, um, I think you're right, Stacey, and I think we need to capture this kind of interest at an earlier age in, in terms of kids. All kids that I know, and I've got godchildren and, and a nephew, really love going to look at trains and seeing trains. And they're really interested in transport and diggers and dust, you know, all those kind of things. And then suddenly it suddenly changes and it becomes that's a boy's activity and that's a girl's activity. We need to kind of unpick that and ask why that is and why we kind of shout down that excitement about that kind of moving around and how people move and how we do all that stuff. So I think there's a lot of work for all of us to do in kind of advocating for what a fantastic career it is. I agree. I absolutely agree. Um, it's one of the things I wanted to pick up earlier, but we've kind of already started to touch on it, but it's in sort of inspiring the next generation of um, transport planners. And I have a theory that one of the reasons we lose people is to do with their school transport um, and the experiences of travelling to school, because I have I have very traumatic memories of the school bus being a horrible place to be. And I, I have this theory that we kind of lose the teenage years because of the uh, of the school bus experience. Um, so maybe we need to think about school transport and how uh, we could improve that. And maybe that would help to... Uh, keep people's keep people's interest um and also I was just thinking about reflecting on the careers in transport and how we sell those careers in transport and it struck me um Stainton in your introduction you talked about having impact in your career and social justice and and those kind of um I don't know aspirations and ideas as, as something you want to build into a career and I think I don't feel we maybe do enough of talking about the impact that transport has on people and, and the value in those transport careers you got any sort of reflections on on that from your perspective yeah, building on uh, building on the question, Claire, and Joe's point as well. One of the things, because I'm relatively new in the transport world, and I think when I uh, started uh, at TfL, the, the the huge immense of pride, huge immense of pride uh, in the knowledge, capability, expertise um, that people uh, um, uh, had uh, learned and developed through their careers, whether they are working in city planning, uh, spatial planning, transport planning. Uh, engineers, people working in assets and renewals. Um, it's just an it's incredible sense of professional uh, pride. And uh, I think that, you know, across transport, a, you know, a better job, as Joe has already uh, kind of touched on, uh, can be done in really kind of amplifying that pride to, to, to more people. Um, and not just the pride, but the genuine enjoyment people get. So I think the, the um, one of the things that really struck with me was just the People could see the influence that they were having on their local communities, uh, whether that be a customer service uh, assistant or customer services manager, whether that's someone uh, working on the Northern Line uh, extension, uh, whether it's uh, making a contribution in whatever guise uh, to uh, to building uh, crossrail and getting crossrail over the line. Just a huge amount of pride um, and a huge amount of tech and technical uh, expertise uh, and competence really honed over the years, and and people could see. Um, the, 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 their role and the impact it will have um, for years uh, for years to come as well. So um, that really struck me very, very quickly when I started at TfL. I didn't know a huge amount about uh, TfL other than what had been read, uh, people read about in the papers at the start. So um, I think a better job, I think, of, uh, of really kind of conveying that, um, I think is important. The last thing I'll touch on really is that, you know, we are we lucky, we, we recruit, you know, hundreds of uh, apprentices and graduates uh, every year, I mean, we've recruited uh, thousands over um, over the last kind of eight or nine years or so, and um, seeing them start to then develop and see where they go with their careers, um, uh, and talking to them about what attracted them into 
uh, into transport. It helps us to be able to decide, you know, how best do we market ourselves um, as a transport network? How do we bring in more people um, from within the organization who are just doing their jobs with a huge amount of pride, actually bringing them closer to, uh, to people at school age and, uh, and people who are leaving university? Um, and, um, and that's been incredibly fruitful uh, to see because um, it's just helped us to be able to, to understand, you know, what are the sweet spots um, that will uh, really make uh, transport a really, really attractive career. Great. Thanks very much. Um, that leads me nicely into a question about sort of attracting talent and how we attract diverse talent. Um, we kind of talked talked around it a little bit, but I'm interested in sort of some some really practical and like specific advice about how how you can go about attracting diverse talent to the transport sector. So we'll start with Jo and then I'll come to Stainton after that. Yeah, I think I think that's really key. I think it's about attracting people and as Stainton touched on keeping people. So I think that retention thing is really a kind of key thing. So I think we need to um uh we need to be looking at whether we can be, you know, how flexible as employers can we be? Obviously, if you're a train driver, you need to be there on time to drive the trains that you're supposed to be driving. But with some of the kind of um uh, more kind of in the background type roles, how can we be more flexible employers? Um, making sure that we're really friendly in the kind of things that we're doing. I think that's kind of, re it's really key, isn't it? You know, but but it, it doesn't always feel like that. Um, and then seeing things from other people's perspectives. So thinking about how can we make this work for people who've got kids or other commitments and how can they make a career in this work for them? So are we able to be much more flexible? And, and also always asking who's not in the room, who is not here and, and how can we reach out to them? Because you can only... When you're recruiting, you can only pick from the best people that come forward for that role. But if people aren't putting themselves forward or we're not encouraging them to put themselves forward, then we're not getting a complete um, uh, you know, choice from the best talent out there. And I, I think there is more to be uncovered. Um, I think there's some huge gaps in the transport industry. I think we lost a lot of people um, uh, during the recession and we've never really recovered um, from that there are some gaps at that kind of level in terms of management and we've never really recovered from that and I'm really worried that we are going to lose people through the things that have happened to all of us in the last year through the horrendous year that we've lived through and that we're not going to be able to recover that back so we've really we've got to be thinking now how are we going to keep the people we've got and how are we going to encourage more people to get into it because as you said Stainton what other what other career do you get to influence what other people do every day of their lives in their lives what a privilege to be able to do that. And we want to make sure we're doing that for the most amount of people. And if, if you're not represented in that, so we need to work as employers to make sure that we encourage people to come forward and that they feel that this is, they can be part of it. And I think the other thing that just finally I'll say is showing real examples. So going back to my, we need to shout about more about what we do. We need to, we, it's a responsibility of all of us working in the transport sector, showing how we can make it work in terms of coming from different backgrounds, having different kids, living in different places, um, I don't live in London and this pandemic has changed everything in terms of the fact that I, we can be speaking to each other this lunchtime, can't we? doesn't matter where we are. That's changed some things and I don't want to see that go. So I, I do, although, you know, in person is really important, I want to see some of these things that have changed really stay because they make the industry much more accessible. Brilliant. Thanks, Joe. I think there's some really interesting points to come back to there around flexibility and um, in careers and also about looking at who's in the room and who's not in the room. Um, but first, we'll just ask Stainton to reflect on this point about attracting diverse talent. And also, I think as well, how we attract talent to the public sector um, in terms of sort of, I know that kind of pay can sometimes be lower in the public sector and particularly for sort of tech careers, it can be even more difficult to attract that talent. So um, some reflections there on sort of attracting diverse talent. Well, it's part, it's part of my job, um, and one of the things I'm responsible for is, you know, executive recruitment, we have an in-house executive recruitment team, um, and, um, you know, it's something that we trove and think about uh, all the time uh, in terms of attracting senior talent, but also looking at uh, people coming in, and uh, one of the things I'm also uh, uh, looking at, I'm uh, responsible for, is uh, longer-term strategic workforce planning uh, as well. So um, we, we think about this very, very kind of carefully, uh, regularly. I, I think the main things I suppose for me um, uh, and kind of practical examples and I think Joe's already touched on this is you know being really quite big and bold and setting out real life lived uh, examples um, of, uh, of, of people's experiences in different uh, careers within transport and that makes a hell of a difference. You know when we are really able to, to, to kind of curate 
a um, a generally kind of a diverse and inclusive campaign. So, uh, you know, we've got roles uh, that might typically be seen as uh, being very operational in nature, but they do allow themselves uh, to uh, for people to um, to have quite flexible working hours and arrangements, whether you're a man or whether you're uh, a woman. So. Um, really, it's been really important to us to, to sell the flexible working benefits, to look at when we think about uh, kind of millennials um, and kind of digital natives, you know, what are the things very much on their minds in terms of uh, what's important to them in terms of their careers? So uh, sustainability, um, the decarbonisation uh, agenda, um, that's incredibly uh, important. It's important for us all, um, but we are able to track that through working uh, and looking at the um, the insights from places like LinkedIn and other recruitment sites uh, to give us a, a good understanding as to, you know, what is it people really care about? And then how can we make sure that we reflect that in terms of our corporate values, um, our policies, uh, reward and compensation and that sort of thing. Um, so having to constantly refine um, our, uh, our uh, kind of uh, approach to, to attracting people in uh, based on the, the latest industry insights. But we also uh, know the types of things that we'll be delivering over the next kind of three, four, five years as well. So that's really exciting too. Um, so it's uh, again, how do you bring that more so to life? You know, do you want to be involved um, in helping to design streetscapes uh, in parts of uh, in parts of uh, London and, and particular boroughs? So we've got to work. We've been working really hard to bring those real life examples um, to life. And I think lastly, I think you know. Um, there are, you know, kind of pay benchmarking and uh, and that type of thing when one looks at the, the private versus public sector and uh, any employer is constantly kind of reviewing, refreshing um, kind of rewards and wanting to make sure that it's uh, it's competitive. I guess um, to get people into uh, into the into the public sector, I think it's really really setting um, the, that kind of the vocational elements as well as it being a, a great place uh, to work where people will be well looked after um, uh, and not just the individual, but their families uh, as well. So um, I think most public bodies do a relatively good job at that, uh, actually. Um, I also just last thing, last thing I should say, I think it's important um, for organisations like our own um, to, to be confident in letting people go into the private sector uh, for short periods of time and then be able to come back because it's really important that we have and we develop people's breadth of knowledge and experience uh, too. So we should confidently uh, encourage people on occasion to, to go elsewhere uh, and then come back. Um, and I think that only benefits uh, customers um, and, uh, and the work. Brilliant. Thanks very much, Dainton. Um, and it's interesting, I was thinking about what you were just saying about the decarbonisation agenda and attracting people into transport. That's kind of why I went into transport. I was particularly interested in sustainability and, and I thought that transport was an interesting dimension of it because people interact with it every day in a way they don't necessarily with energy because you just sort of switch on a light and you don't really think about it whereas you make travel choices every day and that was kind of what attracted me to, to transport and the sustainability aspects of it. Um, I just wanted to pick up on Joe's point about the people in the room and looking at the people in the room and also reflecting on how we su potentially support the people who might face barriers um, and become a good ally to people who might face barriers. So um, again, speaking from my own experience, um, I remember being in a meeting and I was the only woman in the room and I was the only non-white person in the room and I was really struggling to be heard. I was putting my hand up and I wasn't being picked or called on by the chair and another colleague in the room raised his hand and said, Claire is trying to speak here and brought me into the conversation. And afterwards he spoke to me and he said, oh, I wasn't sure if that was the right thing to do. I wasn't sure if that was patronising. And I said, no, that I really felt, I felt heard, I felt seen. I really appreciated you making space for me there. So what else can we do to kind of support the people in the room who might not be being heard or might feel kind of like the minority, like the only being the only woman, being the only non-white person in that space, whatever else, however else they might feel excluded. Um, Joe. Yeah, so I think I think that's a really um, good example, Claire. I also have an example of my, early in my career where I worked in I worked in highways maintenance for a little while. I went to a winter maintenance conference in Nottingham. I can remember it now. I was the youngest person and the only woman in that room, and I thought, oh my gosh, goodness! And I'm sure they thought, oh my goodness, <laughs> who's walked into this room? I think there's something about um, uh, changing our behaviours 
and and we are transport people so we should be really good at that because we're all about getting people to change their behaviors and talking to them about it on the thing that that, that hooks them so is that the climate crisis is that about um more, you know quality is it about social justice what what is is it just about you know traveling better more exercise all those kind of things so we should be really good at this i think that being an ally is really important i think we should be really curious about who's not in the room and i don't think it's um i don't think it's i i don't think it's wrong to, if you're not sure about something to ask questions people will be happy to be corrected so for example transport planning society are trying to be i look after diversity and inclusion for the transport planning society we're not doing as well as we should be we wanted to do some um uh, work on uh, in in light of the black lives matter uh, movement and um, I've been talking with some colleagues that have come forward and want to be part of that. And I wasn't quite sure how to talk about that. You know, that's not the group that I'm from. So being able to say to them in a comfortable environment, how should we refer to this? How should we refer to backgrounds? And I think people are quite genuine. If you're interested and respect people, they'll be quite happy to tell you the correct way to talk about these things, be that gender, disability, background. So I think it's okay I hope that's okay. I think it's okay to ask those questions. I certainly would appreciate people asking me those questions and and say, it's okay to say, I don't know how we're going to deal with this and to go and find somebody who can help you with that. So I think we don't have to have all the answers, um, but we need to be prepared to ask those difficult questions. Um, And in terms of that, who's not in the room, we need to think about the way that we do all sorts of things. So an example is public consultation on projects. Often the people that get heard are the people who shout the loudest and traditionally, before these times, we've done them in old church halls, haven't we, on a, on a, on a weeknight evening when it's convenient and given people two examples of things they might go for. Well, there's a lot of people who, for whatever reason, will not go out in the evening, will not shout up and will not be able to go because of the other commitments that they've got. So we've got to open up those communication channels with the rest of the community and um, for them to be able to comment on that so that we can think differently. And we've also got to think as um, transport professionals it's not the easiest route for us to be able to use that's going to be the right route. We've got to think about the community that are using that. So take it right back to the community we're working with. Brilliant. Thanks very much, Joe. There's some really good points there that I think we'll definitely come back to around Black Lives Matter and the consultation perspectives as well. Um, but just first thinking about um, Stainton, about that point about how we support people in the room and, and being a good ally, if you have any reflections on, on that. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think you know, I've had those experiences personally myself and uh, it's something that's often relayed uh, to me. And, you know, there's quite a lot of research out there in terms of how to be a good uh, ally. Being uh, curious, listening in, in, intently, um, being inclusive by, you know, asking uh, people questions, uh, even if uh, sometimes they haven't uh, yet raised their hand. Um, and just you know, being able to to think about, uh, not just being able to think actually, I should say sorry, being you know, being very cognizant of the fact that people think differently, approach things differently, um, and I think that you know it's really important that if there is a chair in a meeting, uh, they're well skilled uh, in being an inclusive chair. Uh, but even if one's not chairing uh, chairing a meeting, and um, just being quite clear in terms of you know how do we want to make sure that we get the most out of meetings? Because quite frankly. Uh, organizations uh, around the world uh, spend billions uh, on uh, on meetings and so you're not getting the best out of everybody in the room uh, that's an incredible waste of money um, so we're doing uh, quite a bit of uh, work at the moment actually in light of uh, all things kind of COVID and, and, and kind of ways of working we're doing a ways of working review just to make sure that things like meetings uh, we are getting the most out of them and everybody feels involved and included um, uh, and just building on um, in terms of that listening piece. So I know you're going to come to that lives matter, but you know we after the after the events of the summer and the outpouring of um, of, uh, of upset, frustration, the desire to uh, to really want to make sure that we were uh, a genuinely anti-racist organisation. You know we kicked off. Uh, there have been over a hundred listening sessions across held across the organisation. Thousands of people have been able to to tune and be involved um, in them. And I won't go into the detail uh, yet, because I imagine there'll be questions about this a bit later. Um, but what the, the power of those listening sessions meant that um, you've had uh, many people in more senior leadership uh, roles, often on panels, listening and hearing directly from 
uh, from, from people that they uh, they work with and they are uh, responsible for in that business area as to the things that really matter to them. Uh, one of those has been, you know, being unheard when I am in the room or microaggressions and so forth. Um, stuff that we would, we'd, we'd already know, but this uh, it's, it's, the how has been more important, if you like, uh, than the what. And the how is being, okay, rather than uh, the latest policy kind of uh, research or data being pulled in uh, for people to, to review and assess, actually just talking to people and it's okay to make mistakes, uh, but really, really listen to people, creating safe psychological environments where people feel able to, to speak about things in work and outside of work. And uh, it's gone down incredibly well in our organisation. Um, I'll stop there. Brilliant, thank you. Um, maybe we'll stick with that subject on the Black Lives Matter and um, Stainton, I think um, what you've said there about the listening sessions is really interesting, really valuable. And, and um, it's something we've sort of been disseminating across our network with our UTG members um, sharing, sharing the learning that you've you've got from that. Um, but I wonder if you want to say anything else kind of just touching on Black Lives Matter and kind of how the transport sector has responded. And Stainton, if we stay with you for now, and then perhaps we can hear a bit about what the Transport Planning Society are having a think around this too. Yeah, so I mean, it was it's really really interesting time. Uh, if I was to go back um, to to kind of May May June time, because we're just in the midst of uh, contending with uh, with, uh, with lockdown, and uh, in our own organisation, we were slightly ahead of the curve, I think, in uh, in making sure that we uh, rolled out uh, risk assessments uh, for people who might be more at risk of complications owing to COVID, um, and some people might have seen in the press. Uh, that uh, the mayor was very clear that we ought to roll out um, uh, based on just the headline data um, of vulnerable people and and blame uh, COVID uh, risk assessment. And so all of that was happening at the same time. So so I think in terms of the the Black Lives uh, Matter um, uh, and the killing of George Floyd, it felt like at the time there was this crescendo of uh, lots of things that uh, weren't fully, you know, fully kind of fully understood um, but we're quite clear, you know, that there is, of course, you know, structural inequality that still um, exists within uh, society. And that was being played out um, through um, through people who are more likely to die owing to COVID, people who are older, you know, and, and so forth. Um, and I think that one of my kind of uh, kind of uh, my assessments of it is that you know, we were all digesting information in a very different way as well, because so many people were working from home and there have been a number, sadly, of. Uh, of similar events that have happened all around the world. Um, but I think often with very busy lives, um, we kind of take it in and then move on to the next thing. So so people digest information, I think, in a, in a different way to, 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 to typical. What that meant was that uh, I think there were so many more people than uh, you would typically expect in our organisation who uh, rallied together and said, you know what, we have to make sure uh, that we are a, a genuinely anti-racist organisation. Uh, because people were feeling hurt, upset, uh, traumatic experiences were being brought to the fore in people's uh, people's minds, and it wasn't just people from a, a black or an Asian, minority ethnic uh, background. It was colleagues who were white uh, as well. People saying, you know, look, look, uh, we can do better uh, than this. So we, um, uh, I pulled together uh, quite a number of people uh, very kind of quickly to express an interest in getting involved and. Uh, to cut a long story short, um, we've just signed off our own uh, anti-racism leadership charter, which I'll share with uh, yourself, Claire, to, to share across uh, the network, um, which sets out you know, what we will do to be an anti-racist organisation in terms of listening, um, in terms of educating ourselves. And it can cover all protected characteristics, but we want to make sure that we meet um, at this particular moment. It was also really important that we didn't have a, a series of uh, well-meaning words, good-meaning words, uh, but we also set out, you know, what do we, what would we not tolerate uh, as well? Uh, came out really strongly uh, from all of the people through our listening sessions and all of the people who have been involved in the crafting of our response uh, to Black Lives Matter. So I think it's it was a uh, it was an incredible this summer when we look back in history, it was an incredible incredible time. Um, and I'm just really hopeful that we're able to um, uh, through the sad events uh, that we're that we're, that experience we're really able to to to, to use the launch pad uh, to tackle issues that have been not standing fantastic thanks very much Stainton and Joe just a little bit about sort of what the Transport Planning Society are thinking about this and any sort of reflections on the transport sector response to Black Lives Matter more widely as well 
Yeah, I think it's um, yeah, a Stainton. I was just thinking you reminded me that was in the middle of the summer, wasn't it? Which feels like a long time ago, but it was right when we were grappling with the coming, staying in, coming out of lockdown, lots of other stuff going on. But it was really important. And it's a, I think it will become a really important change moment in history. Well, I hope it will. And I think it's easy to um, uh, feel there's nothing I can do. I'm working at home mostly at the moment. What can I do about it? I couldn't go to an, an organised event. What do I feel about this? So I think there's a really key um I think your point about listening is so important, listening to each other, listening to the voices that we're hearing or not hearing and questioning why we're not hearing them. I think there's um, it's really important for all of us to get informed. So reading as widely as you can, making sure you're taking recommendations from organisations that are suggesting books that you can read to get informed about this, because there's really no excuse not to be informed on this um, topic. And there is loads of really good stuff out there. Um, so making sure we we read widely, we ask questions, we question how things are reported in the news, because we're often only hearing one side of those. And sometimes we need to be reminded about those kind of biases that we hear in the news reporting that we're hearing, making sure we are getting all um, voices heard. Um, and then just to touch on what the Transport Planning Society is is is, try, is doing, we want we're engaging with our members at the moment. We want to know, and, and we we're engaging with our members, but we also want to engage with people who aren't members yet to find out what it is that would make it more representative to them. Is it that we need a special? Do we want to have a special group that represents people from different backgrounds? Do we want to feed into the to the general conversation? Do they feel represented enough? And I'm just working with a couple of colleagues at the moment to work out what it is that we want to do about that because. I don't think we are representative of the industry. I think the, in, you know, it's definitely not good enough, but I think the industry is is, is more diverse than we think it is within the organisation that um, I'm on the board for. So we want to work with how do we make that happen a bit better. And one of the things we have done this year is I look after the um, bursary competition for the Transport Planning Society every year. And that encourages young professionals to think about something outside of their day-to-day work. So it gives them the opportunity to go and investigate something write a paper on it and then present to board members on their findings. And the topic for this year has been, how do we build an accessible transport system? And that's in its widest possible context. So it's not just about low floor buses, although they are really important and really good, but looking at the ways that we can make things more accessible to everybody. And we've just had our um, presentations by our six, six finalists and they're all published on the Transport Planning Society website. And they've gone off in such different directions I feel really enthused about the future of transport because I think it's really bright and it's really diverse because they took that topic and went off and looked at things like um, uh, literacy and um, uh, where the role that um, uh, autonomous vehicles play and so many different directions with that big topic. But there's a really big conversation for us to have. So it's really important that all of us keep that conversation going and action it so we listen to people and we put some actual actions down so that sounds fantastic the work you've been doing Staten, because that just sounds like there's some real action behind it and, and it's something we can really live by great thanks very much um, and then I just want to pick up on one more question before I'll uh, go to the questions that have been asked in the chat but I just wanted to come back to this point around consultation and bringing people into the planning process so kind of it's beyond the transport workforce itself but who who can we bring into those consultation processes and make sure that the that we're hearing a diverse range of voices um Stainton perhaps you want to kick us off on that and then um, I know that TFL have done a lot of interesting work in this space yeah I mean it's, it's, it's massively important massively important uh, to us and you know we're fortunate to have a um, uh, 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 an engagement team um, who are incredibly well plugged in uh, to each of the local boroughs um, and all of the, the kind of the community interests uh, that reside within those uh, those boroughs and so I'd say that you know at TFL we're we're quite fortunate in that it's always been a really important focus uh, for us as an organisation. That doesn't mean, of course, though, we capture all voices all of the time. Um, so that we, we do have checks and balances to make sure uh, that we are getting the right um, uh, kind of professional uh, insight supporters with our decision making. So we have an independent disability advisory uh, group uh, in our organisation. They are uh, paid uh, members. Um, and they uh, represent uh, people with um, uh, from different communities um, and with different uh, mobility impairments and disabilities uh, too. They're absolutely fantastic. 
and they now each are budded by someone on our executive uh, committee uh, as well. So there's that kind of reverse mentoring. They work alongside the managing director of LU or uh, the managing director of uh, of, um, of uh, customer uh, uh, and technology. So they are incredibly well plugged in, and that's to help then inform uh, some of our engagements and consultation uh, with people in different communities, but also to try to be able to plug that gap um, if we uh, aren't able to, to talk to uh, every single uh, group uh, that might express an interest uh, or have a point of view uh, about uh, about new streetworks uh, and, uh, and the like. So that's incredibly important. I think it's also, um, I think it was touched a bit earlier on by, uh, by Joe, I think it's really important, uh, and this is something that we, uh, I think we do pretty well, uh, actually, um, go into the spaces and places where different groups uh, typically go and reside. You know, that's just good community engagement practice. Um, but sometimes it does take effort. Uh, it takes effort because sometimes it's not through the, it's not during the kind of the kind of typical nine to five core hours. Um, I led on a piece of work um, uh, where um, I engaged with the residents um, uh, around the Latimer Red Station um, and, uh, and Grenfell. And uh, the quest was, you know, what might we be able to do as a transport uh, authority to support uh, people who are sadly the victims of that terrible fire? And uh, that's all me, alongside a number of other colleagues, um, you know, spending evenings uh, sometimes uh, in uh, neighbourhoods, um, neighbourhood community uh, centres, um, you know, making sure that we try to work around um, the, uh, the the different core hours of some of the charities uh, in that local area. And I think, you know, it's, it's, it's about putting in that effort. I don't think it's, you know, only effortful um, if you are really determined uh, to get a full panoply uh, spectrum of, of responses and views to help inform uh, one's uh, one's thinking. So, um, so yeah. Great, thanks, Dainton. Joe, do you have anything to add on that? I think I echo that. I think we should. Um, the transport um, sector isn't isn't alone in this. We need to learn from really good communications things that we see in our wider society. And I mean, one that's been key this week, hasn't it, about getting people to get their vaccines. So we need to look at the effort that needs to go into work with community leaders within settings so that people, that members of the community trust say these things and are kind of leading by that. And just look at what's working and, and look at the effort that needs to go into to making that happen. It, it doesn't just happen, does it? And I think that comes back to my kind of hiding our light under a bushel. This stuff takes hard work. But when we, you know, I do honestly think when we work together and we collaborate with each other in parts of communities we can make things so much better and 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 create a better thing for everybody just as kind of like a an offshoot of that so why would we not do it great i absolutely agree fantastic so coming to some of the questions in the chat and it also comes back to something i wanted to pick up on that we we sort of touched on earlier but um haven't sort of dug into too much but is around the importance of flexible working and flexible career options and um I think what we'll take forward from this time in the pandemic, but also how that impacts on different genders. So um, one of the points in the chat was that um, often a lot of the domestic and childcare responsibilities fall on women. And will we see more women choosing to work flexibly, work from home, but more men return to the workplace and what potentially impacts could that have? So I think um, just to be really interesting to get some reflections on sort of the need for flexible working, what we'll keep from the pandemic um, and what some of the problems and challenges of that might be. Um, should we start with Joe, and then I'll come to Stainton next? Yeah, I think it's. I think some of that stuff is about leading from the top, isn't it? And, and being comfortable in the roles that we have. So, kind of understanding where different people are coming from. And I think this this one thing this has done for us in terms of the pandemic is show that we when we're, we're all going through something, but we're all facing it in very different situations, aren't we? So some people at the moment are trying to homeschool. Some people are at home on their own and, and literally only have work that is their only contact with other people and aren't getting out and aren't seeing other people. So I think we need to look at the way we program meetings. We need to look at the, um, I don't think until we were all forced to last March, we had exploited uh, video conferencing as much. Lots of people had invested in it and said we were going to do it. But actually, there was still this need to travel everywhere. And face to face is really important. We need to look at how we time that and how we do those kind of things. And I think there's that thing about um, company, at company level, uh, private or public sector, setting that kind of 
thing of it's not I, I am worried I saw that question come up that there is going to be this drive back for men go back to the office and women can't stay and do, and do a lot of the kind of working from home working flexibly we can't let that happen that's making a very sweeping comment we just cannot let that happen because we are all people and I think we need to get away from this leaving my leaving the rest of my life at the door when I go into my office setting we're all we're all more rounded people than that we've all got stuff going on so I haven't got any kids but I like to finish work on time on a Tuesday because I run my rainbow group and that's a commitment I've made and that's part of my life and it's really important to me and it's really important to those 18 kids that I've promised I will be on zoom at that time at the moment or in the hall when we meet normally so I think it's about thinking of you know encouraging people to have bring their whole lives to work, not just leave it at the office door and then that'd be very different. I think, you know, it's important to share as much as you want to, but but making that possible. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point. And I think there's people who have who I'd never met in person and I've met on Zoom over this time. And in some ways I feel like I know them better because I've seen a real glimpse into their lives in a way that you would never get in a in a face-to-face meeting. But obviously there's still incredible value in meeting face to face too. And I miss that very much as well. So um, we've all we've all seen those interviews, haven't we, on television where people's kids have come in and the yeah. cats come in and things. And I was worried today that the postman was going to come right while I was presenting. But you know what? There are lives, aren't they? And we're all just working our way through this. Yeah, definitely. Stainton, any reflections on that? I, I, yeah, I think only a couple of things. Really. I, I mean, I've got two kids under two. I've got one uh, who is only five months old. I've got a kind of lockdown baby. Of course, that was planned. So uh, it's just been, you know, do what you can when you can. Um, and, um, and I think so many people are in lots of different situations uh, where you can only just do what you can. Uh, and so we've had a mantra, uh, which has been do the right thing uh, kind of at TFL to try to make sure that um, we offer as much flexibility as possible uh, to individuals depending on their circumstances. And everybody, of course, and everybody else's organisations has been affected. People's lives have bubbled to the surface. Um, and there's, uh, there's, there's no sort of place uh, to, for that stuff to be um to be covered or, or, or unknown so so we've got to kind of i think hold on to that there's a, there's a major concern particularly with lockdown three there is a major concern uh that uh you know uh the childbearing responsibilities typically uh fall on uh fall on women um and uh, that's creating a strain uh i think uh, in society more broadly particularly with the issues with regard to school openings and not i'm not going to get into that that's way above my pay grades and get into the politics of school openings uh, and so forth. But you know, we talked about this uh, last week on our uh, top 300 leadership call, um, and it's just to continue to reinforce, we just have to be as forgiving and as flexible as possible uh, and making sure that we uh, we try to do the right thing. The one thing I would say is a, is a note of caution, I suppose, and as we kind of, what are the good things we want to kind of hold on to? I think it's going to be really important for organisations to think about, you know, the, the technology that are within offices um, so that, you know, if they're still going to be working uh, from home, we don't want to lose, uh, lose some of this stuff. In two years, three years' time, um, you don't create a two-track um, kind of uh, a system whereby some people are in the office, um, you know, having those water-cooler conversations. Um, there's not meeting um, uh, webcam set up in meeting rooms. Um, so all of a sudden then or the, the, the onus falls wholly on uh, people working from home to make the adjustments to fit in with people who are uh, in the office. I think that's something for all organisations to think very, very carefully about in, uh, going, going forward. Great, thanks very much. Um, we're starting to run out of time and I'm afraid I haven't got through very many of the questions in the chat, but it's been such an engaging um, and enjoyable conversation and perhaps we can take some of these uh, further conversations onto Twitter using the hashtag and uh, we'll pick some of that conversation up over there as well. But I just want to say thank you to our speakers. I've really I've really enjoyed this conversation. I think it's been really valuable. Um, and I'll hand back over to Jonathan to just wrap us up. Thanks, uh, Joe, Stainton and Claire for what was a really fascinating discussion and conversation and there's uh, so much uh, rich content there. But a few phrases that stuck out for me, uh, we're doing better than we were, but there's a lot more still to do. Uh, be friendly and flexible and picking up on that last end of the conversation, that was fascinating, a lot of thinking to do around um how we take some of the best of what the pandemic has inflicted on us uh, and take that forward. Um, the power of real life lived examples. I think some of the short films that TFL have done about their staff and the lives they live and the jobs they do are absolutely 
fantastic and uh, worth checking out if you haven't seen them. How does an organisation look and feel all the time? It's not just when recruiting, it's what the atmosphere is, it's how it comes across all the time is important. Uh, Getting the most out of inclusive meetings, and I'd love to hear more from Stainton uh, offline or whenever about uh, what TFL are doing in that area, because I'm sure we could all learn from that. And uh, transport is uh, a fabulous career, and it is for everybody. So thank you, and I hope um, you'll be able to uh, join us for the next Urban Transport Next event, uh, which is U2N03 on 24th of February at 1pm, when the topic will be the Tynaweir Metro at 40, what next for Britain's Innovation Railway, where we'll be exploring the history of this unique and groundbreaking mass transit system, from how it came about in the first place to what the future holds, including how it might expand further. So I hope you can join us for that. And in the meantime, thanks again to our panel and to everyone who took part live. And for those listening in to the podcast or watching the playback on YouTube, thank you and goodbye.